Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Archives Guy podcast, episode 13.1, Queen Square, a would-be town center, some views, and a big old cannon. So I've been on a little uh, hiatus for the last month or so for a few reasons. First, to recharge the old battery and for some unexpected surgery that put me on the shelf for a few weeks. Nothing to fear, I'm back to 100% and looking forward to continuing our journey exploring the history of Cambridge and the rich heritage of this area. This time out, I'm going to uh, do a little exploration of some landmark locations. I'm going to talk about the history of one of my favorite locations to visit in all of Cambridge, and one that has so much history to it, Queen Square in Galt. I'll explain how it came to be, what the original plans were for it, and the amazing sights that you can see there. Of course, I'm going to be talking about the incredibly beautiful churches, the Galt Cenotaph, the Centennial Fountain, and the Queen Square Cannon, among other uh, landmarks. We'll also look at some buildings that are no longer there and a couple other ones that still are. Now, as I began researching this episode, I realized it's going to be huge, so I've decided to split it into two parts, hence the 13.1. Part 1 will deal with the history of the square, the churches, and the cenotaph. Part 2 will look at the centennial fountain, the cannon, yes, there's a big cannon in the square, uh, anybody who's been there has seen it, which has a fascinating uh, and actually sad, uh, tragic story uh, involving it. I'll also discuss some of the buildings that, like I said, are no longer there. And uh, so here we go with part one of Galt's Queen Square. So back in episode two of the podcast, we covered the early history of what became Galt. The Coles Notes version I'll give you here. In 1784, the British Crown purchased land from the Mississauga Indigenous Peoples and granted to the six nations indigenous peoples in perpetuity all the land along the Grand River six miles deep on either side of the river, from its source to Lake Erie. This was in part to compensate them for the losses they experienced fighting as allies of the British in the American Revolution. The six nations, led by Joseph Brandt, had this land surveyed in 1791 and divided into reserve lands and large tracts which they intended to sell to land developers. Enter William Dixon, a lawyer from Niagara-on-the-Lake, but originally from Scotland. In 1816, Dixon came into sole possession of 90,000 acres of land along the Grand River. This land was known as Block 1, and it was in part also known as Dumfries, after Dixon's ancestral home in Scotland. It contained the land that became at first Shades Mills, and later Galt in 1827. So if you want a little bit more detail on that, please check out episode 2. So by the mid-1830s, Dixon developed a plan to establish the town center of Galt on the west bank of the Grand River, in the area now centered on what we now know as Queen Square. Jim Quantrell describes Dixon's plans for this area in his book, A Part of Our Past. That plan, prepared in May 1836, called for an area called the Marketplace to be located on the open space now occupied by Queen Square. Interestingly, the preparation of the plan follows by less than one year the completion of Mr. Dixon's King's Arms Hotel, which had been built adjacent to the proposed marketplace in town center. There is no question that the designation of this area adjacent to his hotel as the marketplace in town center was, in part, a method to improve the hotel's business prospects. 
The plan also declared that Market Street would run from the marketplace to the present site of Trinity Anglican Church. It also named the street running parallel um, the river Main Street. For a time, Galt had two main streets, one at Queen Square and the other, now Cambridge Street, running north from the rear of City Hall and no doubt adjacent to an already established marketplace. The plan to make the area around Queen Square the town center was met with resistance and did not take hold, primarily because it didn't um, reflect the economic reality of the time. The townspeople saw the east bank of the river as the place where they did business. That is where the general store was, that is where the taverns and the mills were located, and that was where the market must have been located. For them, this was the town center, and there was no need to change it. It seems as if the market did um, that if the market did not already exist when this map was drawn, there would have been no difficulty in locating the market in what is now Queen Square. The fact that the market was never located there suggests the merchants and uh, consumers were already well entrenched in a location on the east side of the river, and were not about to change the location just because the market was placed elsewhere on the map. The original location of the market remains uncertain, but the location is not as, as much as a mystery as the exact date of the first market. Evidence suggests that the market has been at the present location since at least the late 1830s, and it is likely it has been there from the very beginning of the market. So, William Dixon basically overruled by the citizens of uh, what was now Galt, so... Just goes to show you, just because you're the founder doesn't mean you get to say everything uh, that, that goes. So the Queen Square churches. First up, we're going to talk about probably the most prominent feature of Queen Square. It's churches. Before we get started, though, it's best to note that when we get started on this, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of the Presbyterian Church in Galt. And as I researched this, I found it is a very confusing one. So if I get uh, maybe a couple little points a little confused here, I apologize uh, to anyone. It might, uh, yeah. Schisms and splits galore um, existed with uh, the Presbyterian Church uh, in in general and, of course, in Galt. Um, temporary uh, homes uh, for churches, and finally, uh, the end result what we have here uh, as being two beautiful churches for two uh, different segments of the Presbyterian Church at one point. So first we're going to talk about Knox's, not Knox. It took me a few years to learn the, the difference on that one. So it's Knox's Presbyterian Church. So when William Dixon Sr. began to build his settlement that became Galt, he wanted it to be a place where his fellow Scottish immigrants would want to settle in. He sent one of his agents back to Scotland to recruit many of the hard-working lowland Scots. Most of these immigrants were ardent Presbyter uh, Presbyterians, pardon me, these settlers were extremely devoted to their churches, and Presbyterians made up the majority religious denomination in Galt at that point. The first Presbyterian church in Galt was St. Andrews, located along what is now St. Andrews Street. Between 1833 and 1843, there was a great deal of turmoil in the Presbyterian church, leading to an actual split in 1843. This also occurred in Galt when Reverend John Bain, who supported uh, severing ties to the Church of Scotland, gave a sermon at St. Andrew's Church and then proceeded to walk out, along with most of the congregation. This led to a legal dispute with the rest of the church members and resulted in Bain's group losing the use of the church. They then looked to construct their own. It would be Knox's. While Knox's Presbyterian Church is an iconic landmark in Queen Square, 
it's not the original location for the church in uh, the history of Galt. The first Knox's church was located where the current farmer's market building is today. This was meant to be a temporary location, and it was finished in 1846. After Knox's was constructed, the old church was sold in 1871 to the Wesleyan Methodist Congregation, and was finally demolished in 1879 when the Ainsley Street Methodist Church, now Wesley United Church, was built. The new Knox's Presbyterian Church was built in Queen Square in 1869 and completed in 1870. Knox's has been an iconic landmark in Queen Square for over 150 years. Sadly, the congregation of Knox's recently voted to disband in late 2019. Today, it is home to a daycare service along with Grace Bible Church. It is not uh, historically designated, but it has been and hopefully will continue to remain a staple of the square for another 150 years. So now central. As we know, the Presbyterian Church experienced a lot of turmoil in the mid-19th century. This was also experienced in Galt, as we noted with the schism that resulted in Knox's Presbyterian Church being born. It is even more personified when you uh, would visit Queen Square for more than a century with its two towering and beautiful churches. Presbyterian churches, I might add. Another Presbyterian church would join Knox's, but not after just a little chaos. A short history I found um, on the Presbyterian Archives of Canada does a much better job explaining this than I ever could. So Central Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, Ontario was formed in 1880 from the Union of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church Galt, established 1832, and Union Church Galt, established 1857. Union Church has its origins in the uh, development of, the, uh, of a United Presbyterian Church in 1857 by the Reverend John King from the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland. It was located at the corner of Blair Road and Metcalf Street in Galt. In 1861, the name was changed to the Second Canada Presbyterian Church, Galt, and again to Melville Presbyterian Church in 1866. In 1870, it merged with Bain Presbyterian Church, which was formed a year later by minority members uh, uh, from Knox's Presbyterian Church. With this merging, the congregation took the name Union Church. With the formation of Central Presbyterian Church from the merging of the Union Church and St. Andrew's Church, Construction began on a new building, which was officially opened on March the 5th, 1882. So I hope you got all that. Central Presbyterian Church is designated and currently undergoing some extensive re uh, renovations, including a new stained glass window, among other things. Uh, so next we're going to talk about Trinity Anglican Church. Well, not technically in the square. It, it's so close to the, to the square and such a big part of it that you have to talk about it. So while we discussed how William Dixon pushed for Scotland or pushed for Galt, sorry, to have a prominent Scottish identity, and with that came a mostly Presbyterian religious denomination. While Dixon himself was Scottish, he was actually a member of the Church of England, as was his agent and the man who did much of the legwork building the new settlement, Absalon Shade. So Professor Ken McLaughlin of the University of Waterloo wrote an incredible local history book, which I highly recommend, called Cambridge, The Making of a Canadian City. In it, Professor McLaughlin notes that Dixon and Shade, in the early 1830s, sought for an Anglican missionary to be sent to Galt by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. He notes a minister of the Church of England would do much to draw Anglicans to the area especially since the Church of England was the only recognized uh, church officially um, recognized by the government. 
It wasn't until 1840 that the Reverend Michael Boomer arrived and appointed and was appointed missionary for the district that included Galt. The first services were held in Galt's original town hall, which still stands today at 56 to 58 Cambridge Street. The first congregation formed in 1840. It was named Trinity in part after Reverend, uh, Reverend Boomer's uh, alma mater, Trinity College in Dublin. The land for the church was donated by the Dixon family. It would include the church itself, uh, eventually, the rectory, parish hall, and even part of a cemetery. The Dixon family, along with Absalon Shade, donated a significant amount of money to help the church get going. It was completed in 1844, and it is the oldest stone church in Waterloo Region. And it was built, actually, after just two years uh, before Galt's founder, William Dixon Sr., passed away. After Absalon Shade's death, one of his last requests was for funding to construct Trinity House, the church rectory. After Trinity's construction, it allows for a much more um, prevalence of the uh, prevalent prevalence of the uh, Anglican Church, which eventually uh, came both to Preston and Hespler in the form of St. John's and St. James, respectively. Well, not, like I said, not quite in Queen Square proper. It is a huge part of the, of the area. And as the church's uh, cemetery is among the oldest in the area, like Knox's, it is also not designated, but also contributes to the beauty of the area. Next up, we're going to talk about the Cenotaph. Another significant landmark in Queen Square is the Cenotaph. Now, we touched on it uh, in the other war memorials in Cambridge back in episode four. If you'd like to learn more about the history of war memorials in Cambridge, please check that out. We will go over the Galt part again here since it's such an important part of the square. The Cenotaph was erected in 1930, um, and, and it was uh, described by the sculptor as depicting a heroic figure of victory on one side and a mourning figure of peace on the other. It is quite large and stunning uh, and a majestic monument. It has the, the name of uh, Galt's Fallen uh, from both world wars. Jim Quantrell's book describes the memorial. So the memorial was unveiled in an impressive and moving ceremony on November the 10th, 1930. An estimated 10,000 people crowded into Queen Square and the new Garden of Remembrance, which was to be a living memorial to, for, to peace. The cenotaph standing within the Garden of Remembrance was to serve as a perpetual reminder of the great sacrifice made by the men of Galt in the district. The memorial itself was des uh, designed by Toronto sculptor uh, Francis Loring, recognized in her day as one of Canada's top scholars. Sculptor, sorry. Uh, the actual uh, cutting of the stone was done under uh, Loring's supervision by Robert M. Uh, Gullet, also of Toronto, from models made by Loring. The symbolism of the cenotaph is best described by Loring herself. Out of a large central stone merges the heroic figure of victory on one side and the mourning figure of peace on the opposite side. This, uh, this central block is supported at either end by two pylons of which are carved the names of those who sacrificed, upheld victory, and made peace possible. The symbolic figure of victory stands leaning on the sword of sacrifice. He looks to the future and speaks. To them all honor. Guard ye their victory. On the opposite side, the woman also speaks. She is peace. Peace mourning for a for great is the sacrifice these her sons have made that peace may endure she leans with one hand on the shield for it is through battle that they achieved peace 
and with the other hand she offers them the laurel branch that their sacrifice may be ever glorified. In peace and honor, rescue my sons. The dedication ceremony started at 2.30 p.m. when the stillness was broken by the deep tones of O Canada played by the combined Highland Light Infantry, Salvation Army, and Galt Kelty bands. Following a number of speeches, the cenotaph was unveiled by the Minister of National Defense at the time, Lieutenant Colonel the Honorable D.W. Sutherland. The crowd at the ceremony was so large, and all the locations which offered a good view of the proceedings were occupied. The local press reported two heads were noticed protruding from an opening in the, the central church tower. Quite a crowd was on the roof of the YMCA at the time. From the top windows of Knox's, quite a number uh, had a bird's eye view. Boys were up telephone poles and trees, and so great a crowd gathered on the roof of the new clubhouse at the curling rink, it was feared an accident might happen and the police had to chase them off. When the cenotaph was unveiled, it was implied, if not directly stated, that it was the devoted hope of all in attendance that no more names would be added to the 239 inscribed on the monument. This was not to be the case, however, of course, as we know, and the names of 137 more men uh, who died in the Second World War were added and dedicated in a special uh, ceremony witnessed by 5,000 Galtonians on November the 11th, 1949. A separate memorial honors those killed in action serving Canada since 1953. So as you can tell, Queen Square is a significant part of the landscape of uh, downtown Galt. So far, we've talked about the general history of the square, as well as the churches, and now the cenotaph. There's so much more to cover that I'm going to end this episode here and add a second episode to cover the rest. Stay tuned for part two, when we'll look at the Centennial Fountain, other historic buildings uh, in the square, both past and present, and of course, any discussion of Queen's Square is not complete without talking about the canon. Thanks again for listening. It's great to be back talking about the history of our amazing city. As always, give the podcast a follow wherever you get your podcasts and give it a follow on both Facebook and Instagram. Join me next time for part two of episode 13, Queen Square, as we continue to explore our story.